Amen. Thank you so much. We are the church, and it's time for us to live like we are the hope on earth. Thank you so much for that. Now, uh, for those of you who have returned, this may be your first Sunday in quite a while. I want you to know that I share in the offense you felt when Tim Earl called you all old. Um, some of you are long-term members. Some are not yet members, but I don't know where that came from, and uh, we'll be dealing with that in our next staff meeting. But... Uh, it's good to see you all here. And this is the season of Eastertide. We forget that in the church calendar, the season of Easter, it's not just Easter Day, the season of Easter begins Eve of Easter Day and continues for 50 days all the way to the day of Pentecost. And if ever we've had a year where we needed an Easter celebration, it was this year. And so let's just kind of lean into this season of Easter and for, and for the next few weeks, as we're leading up towards uh, Pentecost, we're going to be following the Psalms of Eastertide. And our first Psalm will be from Psalm 133 in just a few moments. He formerly taught at Duke University. Emmanuel Contongale is now professor of theology and peace studies at Notre Dame. He was born in Uganda, the son of Rwandan immigrants. His father was a poor Tutsi who worked on a homestead of a wealthy Hutu man. His father was not a Christian. His family had resisted those European missionaries that came to their country. But his father fell in love with the daughter of the Hutu man who employed him. And so one day he asked for permission to marry her. The father responded, where will you get the cows to pay for the bride price? I did not know that's a question I could ask. I deeply regret that now. We need to revisit this in our culture. Where will you get the cows to pay for the bride price? So the young man, in love, moved to Uganda and worked on a coffee plantation, saved up enough money to buy enough cows for the down payment, went back to Rwanda, gave enough cows for the down payment, and promised that he would be back with the rest of the bride's price and returned again to Uganda. In the meantime, while he is working in Uganda... A wealthy man brought enough cows for the full bride price for the daughter. And he was young, and he was wealthy, and he was Hutu, and he was Christian. And so the girl's father had a moral quandary what to do about the first young man. And about that time, he returned from Uganda with the remaining required cows. If I did not mention that, I regret not knowing that was a question I could ask. His father told him he could not allow him to marry his daughter even though he had completed the bride's price because he was not a Christian. So Katangali's father decided that was not a problem and he went and visited the local priest and said he was willing to do anything he had to do whatever was required he was eventually baptized they married and they returned to Uganda where Dr. Katangale was later born as a young man they only returned to Rwanda once because his father ended up dying when he was 12 years old and he doesn't remember traveling back again 
But he also doesn't remember his parents talking about one was raised Tutsi and one was from the Hutu tribe. They didn't talk about Rwandan politics, preferring to forget it. He later writes, we were not Hutu or Tutsi, but rather we were Rwandans living in Uganda. That by itself made us strange, but we were also a family that took Christianity seriously. He remembers his parents telling him about faithful followers of Jesus, some of whom died for their faith, in particular a 14-year-old boy named Kazito who stood up to the king of Uganda, stood up to the king of Uganda at 14 years old and said, it's better to die for my faith in Christ than to deny it, becoming the youngest Ugandan Christian martyr of all time. These stories, coupled with his parents' evangelical Catholic faith, are what influenced him to become both a teacher and a minister. And Dr. Katangale writes this, in Africa, as in America, there's a multitude of powers and stories that try to define who we are, the color of our skin, the nation of our birth, the history of our culture, or the characteristic of our tribe. But when I baptize someone into the church of Jesus Christ, I see that God is making a claim on their bodies. Are they still black? Are they still white? Are they still Rwandan? Are they still American? Perhaps, but there is a real sense in which our identity gets confused, and then he clarifies that with the phrase mixed up. Our identity gets mixed up with Christ's identity and baptism. Who, are, who we are becomes, or at least ought to become, confused and confusing to others. Who we are becomes, or ought to become, confused and confusing to others. So who has claim on you? What has claim on you? Our Psalm of Eastertide today is Psalm 133. It's the 14th of 15 consecutive psalms that begins with Psalm 120 that are called song, psalms or songs of ascent. And that is they were used by pilgrims as they went up to Jerusalem. Elevation, you, you, you walk up to Jerusalem. And so these are songs that pilgrims would sing as they are traveling there on festivals, on these holidays to celebrate. They are songs that are about blessing. They are songs that are about unity. They are songs of celebration. You've already heard it once, but let's read it once again. Psalm 133, look at how good and pleasing it is when families live together as one. It's like expensive oil poured over the head, running down onto the beard, Aaron's beard, which extended over the collar of his robes. It is like the dew on Mount Hermon streaming down onto the mountains of Zion because it is there that the Lord has commanded the blessing everlasting life. And that's it. Three verses. 
And at first, as you start asking, now what is this really about? And to whom is being addressed? Uh, it's like looking at a mountain from a distance, and then slowly as you're driving and you're getting closer and you end up moving to the side, you realize you aren't looking at one mountain, but there is actually another mountain behind it, an entire mountain range. And as you begin reading this psalm and hearing it, it's about the family. Look at how good and pleasing it is when families, and actually the Hebrew word is brothers, when, when that small tribe, when that group, look at how good and pleasing it is when the family lives together as one. And then before you finish reading the psalm, you realize, wait a minute, this isn't just about the family. This isn't just about one local unit. This is really about the entire nation. This becomes the family of these group of people, a nation, all the people united around a vision, a goal, a mission. It's about unity, not uniformity, but about unity. The opening line celebrates an experience living together as God envisioned. And the final line identifies the experience as this blessing that we all hope for, life forevermore. And notice something unusual in the Psalms. The name of God doesn't appear until the very last line. The implication may be that the work of this unity isn't the work that Yahweh does. It's the work that we have to do. The implication seems to be, wait a minute, the responsibility for living this way and discovering this, this isn't God's responsibility. God has given us everything we need to experience life as God envisioned from the very beginning. The responsibility is mine. The responsibility is yours. God is the hidden source of this well-being, but I have a responsibility of how I'm going to respond. And then he uses these two similes to describe what this is like. And the first one seems so strange to us, this oil, this precious oil. Now, if you come to my house, I'm not going to spray you down with WD-40, even if you are a little squeaky. That's not part of our culture. But notice how extravagant this one appears. It's, it's this act of incredible hospitality. It's this blessing beyond responsibility. And it's not just the kind that anyone would receive. It's even Aaron as he is appointed in his priesthood and it's flowing down his beard and it's running down his robe and we go how is this good well it's not our world and we haven't been traveling on these long dusty roads and the word good appears twice to kind of capture us or at least it does in Hebrew look look at how good there's the, the Hebrew word for good and this, the exact word is used in the second line it is like and most English translations do something like expensive or precious it's the same word look at how good and pleasing it is like good oil pulled over this is what we want this is what we desired it's overflowing it's fragrant it's extravagant such goodness is expensive and excessive and you cannot buy it with money because it's about attitude and not just my attitude but the attitude of the people I live with and it's not just the people in my house it's the people that we meet and worship with and it's not just the people that I meet and worship with it's how we live and respond to people when we go outside the place of our worship and he says this unity is like the dew of Hermon 
Mount Hermon, over 100 miles to the north of Jerusalem, known for the dew that is there, this life-giving moisture that appears. And what miraculously appears on Mount Hermon 100 miles away is the same dew that's now going to appear on Mount Zion, which I think is just a way of saying this kind of extravagance, this kind of blessing, this kind of living is going to be everywhere. When the people of God unite, the blessings of God will flow everywhere. The goodness of life just flows and flows and flows. And Psalm 133 reflects on how the people of God are capable of living. Capable, but not always willing. Why? Emmanuel Katangale researched and wrote Mirror to the Church, Resurrecting Faith After Genocide in Rwanda. My understanding that is Rwanda is an absolutely beautiful place. There's a Rwandan saying that says, God travels the world but rests at night in Rwanda. That that's the place that reflects the glory of God's creation. If you were to go back, if you were to go into a seminary library and go back and find missions magazines and mission journals and textbooks that were training missionaries. If you go back and look in the 1980s, Rwanda was considered a model of evangelization in Africa. Nowhere else in all of the continent was Christianity received the same way that it was in Rwanda. Seminary students in the 80s and the 90s, or at least the beginning of the 90s, studied what happened in Rwanda as a model. What can we learn for what the missionaries did there? What can we learn how Christianity, Christianity was, it was introduced there? How can we replicate that in other parts of the world, in other countries where we go, or even bring some of that back to our own country here in the United States? But in 1994, the most Christianized country in Africa became the site of its worst genocide. And how could that happen? The slaughter that lasted for 100 days in the spring of 1994 began on April 7th, the Thursday of Easter week. For us this year, it would have been this last Thursday, the anniversary. In a country that's over 85% Christian, virtually everyone went to church on Easter morning to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord Jesus. One week before that, churches were packed in Rwanda as they celebrated Monday Thursday, as we did a week and a half ago, as we did to remember the new commandment that Jesus gave us to love one another just as he has loved us. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples that you have love for one another. And one week later, one week after Monday Thursday, the Thursday of Easter week, Christians in Rwanda took up machetes, looked fellow church members in the face, and hacked their bodies to pieces. Look at how good and pleasing it is when families live together as one. How does this happen? 
800 Tutsis and some moderate Hutus were killed throughout Rwanda in their homes, at roadblocks, and in churches. And for the most part, they were killed by their neighbors and by their fellow church members. One survivor from the village of Musozi tells the story of hiding in a small building beside the church in his village. From his hiding place, he could hear what was happening in the church. He could hear as his neighbors were being executed and as they were shouting out, they were calling out the names of their killers. Why are you killing us? Calling them by name because they were their neighbors and they were their fellow church members. And how does that happen in a Christian community? Look at how good and pleasing it is when when families live together as one. And and how does that happen? And the history of that Christian nation cannot be separated from the fact that churches were intimately associated with the genocide. One man in particular told his story Adalbert recalls how the Saturday after the president's plane crash, the Saturday of Easter week, um, that would be yesterday for us. The Saturday of Easter week, he went to his usual choir practice at his church in Kabungo. He writes, uh, we sang hymns in good feeling with our Tutsi compatriots, our voices still plending in chorus. When they, wor- when they returned for worship the next morning, that would be the anniversary today. When they returned for worship the next morning, the Tutsis were not there. They had already fled in fear into the bush, and this angered the Hutus in the church, including Adalbert, and they immediately organized to chase after the Tutsi church members. He confessed, we left the Lord and our prayers inside, a rush ho- inside to rush home. We changed from our Sunday best into our workday clothes. We grabbed clubs and machetes, and we went straight off to killing. Brothers and sisters who sang hymns together one day were suddenly hunting and killing them. Look at how good and pleasing it is when families live together as one. And how does this happen? Cardinal Roger Echecaray, Echecaray, excuse me, Roger Echecaray was appointed by the Pope in 1994 to visit Rwanda. He asked the assembled church leaders this question. Are you saying Are you saying that the blood of tribalism is deeper than the waters of baptism? Are you saying that the blood of tribalism runs deeper than the waters of baptism? And the answer was yes, it is. How does this happen? And we say, it can never happen here. We too are tribal people. Most of us are members of multiple tribes, and most of the time, those are good things. Sports fans, occasionally some of you go too far. 
But for the most part, no, it's mostly good natured and you enjoy it and it adds meaning to your life and the meaning to your family and the experiences that you have. Nationality. I've always believed that Christians should be patriotic, even though from time to time it means that we speak truth to power. Regardless of where we are from, there's something about being a follower of Christ and identifying with the nation that gives you the opportunities where you live. And we have tribes that get regions. It's one thing to be southern. It's one thing to be from the Pacific Northwest. It's one thing to be from the north. And even though we go back and forth, we hold on to some of those things that are about part of our tribe. We have political parties, and Christians have always identified with a variety of political parties, and we should be involved. Good and helpful things come out of that tribal association. Commitments and beliefs about governments and finance and public laws and safety and public spaces, and, and the list goes on and on and and on. And maybe we should make a list of those. I've been thinking about mine this last week. Well, what are all the tribes that, that I'm a part of? But what happens when the blood of tribalism is deeper than the waters of baptism? And it can sneak up on us. And we say, I can't happen here, not what happened in Christian Rwanda. Then I started listing some questions. How have you talked about a fellow believer who wasn't in your tribe? Have you said nasty things? Angry things? Hurtful things because someone wasn't in your favored tribe? I'm not talking about stating disagreements or dialoguing or learning from each other. Those are good. Those are positive. Those are helpful and healthy. I'm talking about statements and attitudes you'd never say in front of your mother. But, but what about our risen Lord? Tribalism versus baptism. Kerry Newhoff is a well-known pastor, and he's really well-known for uh, his blogging skills, and I've never seen anyone that can make a series of lists like Kerry Newhoff. Absolutely outstanding. And recently, he wrote a blog, Five Unsettling Cultural Predictions for the 2020s, and the very first one, the current instability will continue. Politically, economically, socially, and culturally, normal was dying long before COVID-19. The disruption of a global pandemic was the final nail in normal's coffin. And if we think normal is going to return just as soon as we can take off our mask, we're wrong. Researchers like George Freeman are saying that we're looking at a decade of this kind of disruption, that it's going to be well into the 2030s before we're going to feel this stability. And Psalm 133 strongly suggests that the antidote is unity. Unity of mission, not tribalism. It means that we as, a church, as the church and we as a church have an incredible opportunity to model a different way, a better way, a Christ-like way. So what does all that mean for us? I'll return to Katangale for just one more time. Um, 
a quote that he shares with us. I want to suggest that the crisis of Western Christianity is reflected back to the church in the broken bodies of Rwanda. Indeed, I want to say the only hope for our world after Rwanda's genocide is a new kind of Christian identity for the global body of Christ. I would like to change that phrase because after reading his book, it's not a new way. It's actually returning to a very old way. It's returning to a very biblical model. So here are my suggestions for us as we are facing a world in turmoil well into the 2030s which also means we are facing an incredible mission opportunity to be the people of God, to live the kind of lives Christ has intended, that we have a golden opportunity before us. So the first one I would say is remember, you are a new creation in Christ which is reminded to us not only in the teachings of Jesus, but by those who follow Jesus. And in particular, I'm thinking about Paul writing in 2 Corinthians. For those who are back, a new creation, a whole way of living, a whole way of experiencing, which also means difficulties, which also means challenges, which also means pains, which also means times when we may be fearful. New rules and new objectives. New sources of power. And we do have a responsibility. And God has given us what we need. And what are we going to do with those resources God has given to us? So I remind us of the second one, that my first identity is now Christian. Of all the tribes that I belong to, this is now my first identity. In Acts chapter 11, we find the people of Antioch, and they were first called Christians in Antioch. The Greek word is christianoi, Christ, the, the Messiah, and then they add this little phrase to the end, this, this little ending to the world that just means belonging to Christ. And so there were people who were followers of Herod and supporters of Herod, and they were known as the Herodianoi. And there were people who were supportive of Nero and all of his viciousness and anger and hatefulness, and they were called Augustianoi. And the people who observed how they were living observing how they conducted themselves in, in Antioch, observed how they responded to the news and their neighbors and even the persecution they were facing, said, wait a minute, they are Christianoi. They're acting just like Jesus acted. And that's a tough one. And so now I have to say, am I a Christian American or an American Christian? Which one comes first? Am I, well, whatever tribe, and I've made a list of them for me, and now I have to ask, wait a minute, how does that fit? I have to be honest with my tribal identities, and then I have to ask, how am I submitting them now that I have been baptized into the body of Christ? Because my tribes are important. They are important to me. They add meaning to my life. Some of them are just about entertainment and filling time, and some of them are about strong convictions that I have about how the world should work. And, but wait a minute. What is my role in the tribe as a new creation? I am a disciple first. So how am I living now within that tribe and functioning as a Christianoi. 
How has God placed me there, and what is God wanting me to do when I wake up and say, and we don't always do this every day, but I wake up and go, wait a minute, I am first today a follower of Jesus. I'm an engineer second. I'm a teacher second. I'm a custodian second. I'm an electrician second. I'm a parent second. I'm first a follower of Jesus. How does that influence every other part of the tribes that I'm a part of this day. And we also heard this scripture, this incredible summary of the early church as they are bathing in this, as they are realizing this, and as we turn the pages in the book of Acts, they begin struggling with it just like we struggle with it. All the believers were united in heart and mind. Psalm 133, they felt that they, what they owned was not their own. They only got that out of the grace of God, so they shared everything they had. The apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, the Easter morning, the Easter celebration, and God's great blessing was upon them. There was no need among them because those who owned land or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles. Oh, how blessed it is, how good it is when the people of God live together. Look at how good and pleasing it is when families live together. How does that happen? That's, that's the question we should be asking, and, and I'll add one more. Because once I have gone into those waters of baptism and saying, I am now Christianoi, I am on mission, and we are all on mission. And awareness and intentionality in life are now key. Here, when I'm at church and, and when I'm at home and when I'm in my different tribes, even when some of those tribes start stepping outside of the bounds of the teaching and the love and the grace and the vision of Christ, I am now on mission there to say, wait. Can't talk about them that way. Wait. Hateful speech leads to hateful actions. Wait, let's find out what's happening in their life. Wait, how can we be a part of what God is doing in their world? God's desires for our world burns bright. Will we be a part of that mission? In preparing for this week's sermon, I, I found someone who attempted to translate Psalm 133 and then the final Psalm of Ascent and pulled it together, and this was their attempt. Oh God, how precious it is for us and how pleasing it must be to you when your children learn how to live and work together in unity. It is in the measure that we do this that we begin to resemble you. Christianoi, and to carry out most effectively your purposes in our disjointed and discordant world. A few minutes ago, we sang about, do you, do you feel it in the world? Do you know, we do, we do. Creation is groaning. It is, it is. And we've gathered here today because we are not without hope. We're gathered here today because we are not alone. We're gathered here today because we are confident that the love that God has and shown towards us is the love that God has and wants to show towards others. And I have a reason to get out of bed tomorrow. It doesn't matter what's on the news. I have a reason to get out of bed and to live my life differently even if people in my tribe haven't seen it yet. Light of the world. 
salt of the earth. I wonder what God wants to do this season of Easter. And let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the challenge and the hope, the promise and the power that life can be different. We have sung the desire. We have confessed our confidence. And now we ask for you to empower us as we go out the door. Where will you take us this week? Open our eyes. Who will you bring into our offices and our homes and our classrooms? Who will you bring by our path when we're at the filling station or going into the drugstore, stopping into a restaurant? Who will walk up and begin a conversation? And you're giving us that moment to listen, to identify, to be part of who you are and what you are doing in the world. So help us take a deep breath, slow down, and be your tribe changing our world. In Christ's name, amen. We end that prayer in Christ's name because we know we can't do this alone and we don't have to do this alone. So we give you this opportunity. If you've never experienced that connection with our creator God, you've never experienced that kind of forgiveness or grace or hope in your life, you've never had that real reason, why am I existing and why, what reason do I have to get out of bed in the morning, we would love to pray with you to share with you a little more about what God is doing in the world and God's plan to be involved in your life as well. Let's stand, let's sing, and let's say yes to what God is doing.